Okay, let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. We have a lot to work through in Luke today. Lord God, in your infinite power and mercy and love, you have created all things, you have created this day, you have created us. You have shared who you are, what we need to know, how we need to know it, and what we need to do about it. You've shared all of that in your holy word and especially in your life among us in Jesus. Bless and be with us then that we might understand and know more of these things so that we might align our lives with who you created us to be, that we might find our highest good and our most far-reaching impact in the world to continue your work of bringing love and renewal and hope and redemption to all. Those are the things we think about as we open your word today, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, we are coming, as Terry said, into the last stretches of, uh, of Luke here. Luke is continuing to tell us about the events, the, uh, the happenings, the conversations, the arguments uh, that happened in Jesus' last days and uh, continuing to share with us, of course, how Jesus reveals to us uh, what life in the kingdom is all about and how we as human beings, uh, using the Jews, using the Romans, using the common people of his day, how we as human beings uh, respond and react and often resist and refuse and are blind to what God is saying to us and what we are meant to do. So let's start in with chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the, the people in the temple and telling the good news, the chief priests and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. <laughs> okay, that's my editorial comment. That's not in the scripture, all right? <laughs> all right, obviously one of the big stories of Jesus' appearance in Jesus' ministry is that what he says, how he says it, the implications of what it means, and then how he is living presents a major threat to the way people have understood God and understood themselves and understood and applied that into their lives. There's a big conference. In a way, that's the whole story of Scripture right there. And so now as Jesus has entered Jerusalem, as he is teaching in the temple, we have, uh, in a sense, the, the, the final battle being engaged right at, right at center court. This is like, I, I've never been to Wimbledon, but I guess there's a whole bunch of, of tennis courts right at Wimbledon, and then there's center court. And center court is where the, the most important matches are played. Well, we're at center court now. We're at the temple. The center of, in, in, in classic Jewish thinking, the center of the universe 
is at the temple. That's representative of where God lives. And so Jesus, this untrained hick from the north, has come into Jerusalem and is starting to teach in the place where the best teachers, the most important, most powerful minds and leaders do their teaching and do their leading. It's a direct confrontation. And so they come to him, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they all come to him and say, whose authority are you preaching by? And Jesus understands that question as a challenge, not just as a simple question, but a challenge as a way of saying, you do not have authority from God. Get out of here. You don't belong here. You haven't, you haven't been to college. You haven't been to seminary. You haven't been ordained. You haven't been approved by the group. You're not one of us. You're not part of the clique, the club, the, the, uh, the what's the word I'm looking for, uh, the union. Um, and you have no authority. Now, clearly, Jesus had lots of authority. Jesus had a power. Jesus had an ability to teach that the people had responded to. <laughs> Jesus is followed by a lot of people by now. Um, and, and the leaders are threatened by that. So they ask that question, by whose authority do you teach? Jesus turns around and asks them a question, though, to prove to the people who are listening to the question and the answer and to prove to those who are challenging him uh, that he has an authority like nobody else's authority, beyond their authority. Uh, and, and he does that by asking them a question that's impossible for them to answer. John's baptism, right? Who, where did John get his authority? And, and of course, they go back and say, wow, that's, that's a really good question. If we answer it one way, we're toast. If we answer it the other way, we're toast. They were trapped by that question. And that was the answer, is that they were trapped. They could not tell the truth because if they said the truth one way, they were in trouble. If they said truth the other way, they were in trouble. Now, clearly, John's preaching came from God, but they couldn't admit that because John had challenged them. And so by implication, if they say that Jesus' teaching comes from God, well, then they have to pay attention to it. And that dismantles their whole system. That, that completely undercuts everything that they've gotten wrong. If they say that Jesus is not from God, then they're saying to the masses of people that they are wrong about who Jesus is, and they don't want to say that either. So it's a very, very difficult uh, political situation that Jesus puts them into. Now, we, of course, as the reader who's not there, the reader who's behind the scene, the reader who understands the bigger picture of what's going on, we can look at this situation and see how the normal everyday people and the leaders had positioned themselves in such a way that, that they could not be genuine and authentic about who they were and what they were. Jesus was challenging all of that. And we look at that and say, of course Jesus was right. But then we have to go a little bit further. And this is something I wanna push us on a little bit today. Every confrontation, every argument, every situation that occurs in scripture is not just a story about them back then. It is a story about us here and now. We are meant to see ourselves and our lives and our context in this story, right? Do we 
do we listen to what God says? You know, we, we come and sit here in church and say, God said this. We say, that's what God says. This is what we believe the truth is. But then we have to walk out the door and live by that truth. And, and that's a problem because sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes it puts us in a difficult situation where we have to decide to do something that's not necessarily going to be popular or going to be financially successful or going to make us uh, good with our friends. I, there are all kinds of ways in which admitting the authority of God, admitting the place of God in our lives, puts us into a difficult context. Now, of course, Jesus will say, and Jesus will lead us to understand that that's the best thing to do, but it's hard to do. And, and, and here we see that reality, that, that conflict in these leaders. And so uh, on the one hand, I want us to have some sympathy for them, but even more so, I want us to have empathy for them, to understand that their situation, their conundrum, their hard place is our hard place. And we are meant to learn from that. So let's keep on going. Verses 9 through 19. Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next he sent another slave, that one also, and that one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, this one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be maybe uh, may ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Okay, here, here we have two distinct stories, two distinct images that have been linked together, and the transition between them sometimes is a little bit confusing, but let's try to pull this apart, and it, and it does all make sense. Jesus tells a story to the people. All of Jesus' stories, his parables, are, are things that come from real life back then. People would understand this context. We have a, a, a man who owns a bunch of stuff and he sends his servant, he sends his representative. Oftentimes slaves in that era were, were highly trusted uh, administrative professionals, if you will. Uh, and they were given lots of authority over things. So he sends uh, a, a junior level uh, servant uh, who comes and says, you know, time to collect rent. Nope, not going not gonna to take it, not going to give it to you. Sends a higher level. Finally, he sends his own son. And, and all three are rejected. All three are rejected. Even the son is killed, okay? That kind of a story 
would ring true to people in that time. They would understand that, that especially the first two instances of the, of the servants being rejected and the, and the tenants refusing to pay the rent, that that could very well happen and probably they had heard about stories like that. The son being killed was going perhaps a little bit far, although there would be times that that could have happened. And so obviously this is a parable about something that happened in real life, but it means something else and, and clearly, Clearly, the people who are hearing the story begin to understand who the servants of, of, of this owner are and then who the son is. Now, let's talk about the servants first, right? The prophets were those representatives from God. The, uh, the, the ancient judges of Israel were those representatives from God who would come and say, this is what God wants. This is what the owner of all creation wants. This is what's expected. This is what's going to lead you into blessed life. And they're rejected. But now the sun has come. And that's where the real issue is. In a sense, certainly, Jesus is saying, I'm the son who's come. Or when the son does come, are you going to reject him? It's a prophecy of what's going to happen. Jesus knows that's going to happen. He sees that confrontation coming. Later on, people will remember this parable and say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. We, the people who say that we believe in God, we who say we represent God, we have rejected God's very son, God himself. To reject the son is to reject the father. And then Jesus follows that up, though, with adding in this story about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's like Jesus' further commentary on the rejection of the leaders of, of Israel of what God is actually trying to do. And, and it's a new image that's come in. So let's, let's put aside the, 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 the rent and the farmers and the, the servants coming to collect rent. Let's set that aside for just a second. Look at this other issue and then connect them, okay? Have any of you here ever built anything with bricks or blocks? Anybody here done? A couple of you have, right? You have to get the foundation perfect or the whole thing is messed up, don't you? Right? If it's a little bit off, you know, if it's not exactly leveled by the time you get to the top of the wall, the wall is going to be leaning. If it's, not, if it's not perfectly straight, you're going to have a curvy wall. The stone that would be laid first when you start to build a wall is the cornerstone so that you get the angles right, so that you get everything level and perfectly straight. The cornerstone is the most important thing. You base everything off of that cornerstone. So Jesus is saying, God is building something and he sent the cornerstone, but you've rejected the cornerstone. It's been broken to pieces. You've rejected the very thing, the very standard, the very, the very thing that is upon which the whole kingdom of God is being built. And so that's another way of saying two different images. Two different ways of saying that the people are rejecting. They have rejected it before by rejecting the word of the prophets, by ignoring the teaching of the prophets that the people are meant to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly and take care of the orphans and widows and all of that stuff. The people are rejecting what God is doing. And of course, that is a direct contradiction to everything that the temple has become, everything that the, that the worship of Israel and the religious life of Israel has become. 
Now, this just occurred to me, and I think it holds together. Uh, was it yesterday uh, that the president of Ukraine spoke to the United Nations and said, if the United Nations doesn't have the power to stop uh, an, an unjust and illegal war and war crimes, then it ought to be abolished. That's basically what he said, right? It's useless. That's the exact same kind of message and the exact same kind of situation. One person in a country that's being torn apart by war, one person standing up to all the world powers and everybody else in the United Nations and saying, you've gotten it all wrong, you're useless. It's that kind of a confrontation. Does that make sense to you? So that's what's being said in these parables. Okay, let's keep on going. Verses 20 through 26. So they watched him, meaning the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, the leaders. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest in order to trap him by what he said, so as to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful for us? Then they have a question. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? They said, the emperor's. He said to them, then give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answer, they became silent. Okay, here again, one more time, one more attempt that the leaders are trying to trap Jesus, to get him to say something that they can use against him to shut him up. And they ask a really, really good question. It's a fascinating question. You know, should we pay taxes? What should we do? Now, everyone listening in on that is going to be very curious what Jesus has to say because on the one hand, no Jew wanted to pay taxes to the Romans. And if Jesus says, you should pay taxes to the Romans, that undercuts his popularity, that undercuts his authority right there. On the other hand, though, if Jesus says, don't pay taxes to the Romans, then, the Ro then he's going to be in trouble with the Romans, right? And, and he's going to be in trouble with those Jews who say, some of the Jews would say, let's just pay the tax, Rome will protect us, we know it's a problem, it's a pain, but that's the best we can do, right? What, either way, Either way, if Jesus says, pay your taxes or don't pay your taxes, you're going to be in trouble. Now, I would propose to you that that, that in some sense is an unanswerable question, isn't it? And let me ask, let me try to put us into that context by asking about that very same question, okay? Should you pay your taxes? And let me ask it a different way. Are you happy with the way your taxes are spent? Okay, I knew that what that answer was going to be, didn't I? Right? Okay. On the one hand, I think most people would say, I'm happy with the way some of my taxes are spent. I'm happy that we have roads to drive on. I'm happy that we have uh, police to protect us. But I'm unhappy that the roads are full of potholes. And I'm unhappy the police sometimes don't do their job very well, with all due respect to the vast majority of police, right? And so it's an impossible question to answer, but 
Jesus answers it in a way that says, you're not going to trap me with this impossible situation. Whose face is on the coin? Oh, obviously that belongs to, to Rome. Give it to Rome. But give to God the things that are God's. I would propose to you that, that Jesus is very clear and, 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 and realizes and admits the, the ambiguous, difficult world in which we live, right? We say sometimes you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Okay, by that we mean that we find ourselves all the time in situations that are not completely clear cut. There's not a perfect answer. And so we live in an imperfect world where we, where we live with making imperfect decisions. If you do this over here, then there's a problem over there. If you answer this problem over here, then there's a problem over there. Do you know what I'm talking about? In just about, in just about everything. Jesus will not allow himself to be trapped into saying there's only one exact perfect way to do things always. But Jesus does call us to look at what the higher authority is, to look at what the ultimate good is, and then to go forward and make our decisions and to do what we're going to do. Here he's talking partly about the problem of the relationship between the church and the state as well, okay? On the one hand, people of faith have always said, our highest authority is to God. But then we live necessarily in human communities where we have human government of some kind. And that's hard to figure out because people of faith disagree about what human government should do. And, and sometimes it's not a clear-cut decision like, should we have slavery or not? Well, of course, that's a black and white thing. Oftentimes it's about what's the best way to spend our limited resources or what's the best way to organize ourselves. And, and, and in the human world, there are good ways and there are worse ways, but there's not necessarily or a perfect way or a completely imperfect way. There is no political system. There's no economic system. There's no system of doing life that is absolutely perfect. And that highlights for us the fact that we live in a fallen world and we can't make it perfect all by ourselves. We need someone to save us from that. If you talk about this from a, from a political perspective, governmental systems, political philosophies, right? We live here in the United States of America. We say that democracy is the best way to govern ourselves. But actually, we don't have a pure democracy. We have a representative democracy. And representative democracy is not perfect. Neither is pure democracy. There is no perfect system. Is it better than totalitarianism? Well, yes unless you have a perfect totalitarian dictator who makes the best decisions for everybody all the time and nobody else has to worry about government, right? Kind of like Camelot, where you got King Arthur who's taking care of everybody. Wouldn't that be nice if we had just one king who did everything perfectly? We wouldn't have to pay for any other government. We wouldn't have to have politics or elections. So there is no simple answer to the questions, no absolute perfection. We live in the midst of that tension between competing perfections, competing goods, and we do our best. Can we do better? Are some things better than others? Yes, of course they are. But nothing is perfect in this world except for God and God's Son. Does that make sense to you? 
The Bible understands this ambiguity, if you will. So let's keep on going. Verses 27 to 40 of chapter 20. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they're like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. Let's go through this kind of backwards. This is the last question that Jesus gets asked by the Jews. Okay? He is going to be asked a question later on by the Romans, by Pilate. Several questions. What is truth? Are you the king? Those questions. But after all this questioning, after all these ways that, that the leaders try to trap Jesus and try to show him up for the fraud that they want to prove him to be, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so the Sadducees come. The Sadducees were not the Pharisees, two distinct groups. The Sadducees did not believe in eternal life, not in the same way that everybody else did. And so when they're, they're asking this question, they're asking the question from out of their understanding of the way life works. And their understanding is, is that you're born, you live, you die. Any sense of afterlife for you is actually not your afterlife, but it is your posterity. It is your history that moves on through your children especially. That's why it's so important in this marriage between the one brother and his wife. It's so important that they have children, but they don't. In fact, it's so important that this brother have children that his, his brother needs to marry that same woman to try to have children because that's how the posterity is going to be continued. This would actually happen, maybe not seven times, maybe, who knows, but this would actually happen in the Sadducees subculture within the Jewish culture. And so again, it's a story that people would understand, a situation that people would understand. And they say with Jesus, what's that about? Who, you know, if you believe in the afterlife, who's she going to be married to? Which of the seven brothers? I happen to think that she would pick out her favorite, but that's another story, right? <laughs> Jesus here says to the Sadducees, there is afterlife. You don't understand anything about it. It is a different reality than the reality that we experience here in this world, in this life. It is a, a reality that God takes care of. It is a reality in which relationships are completely restored and fulfilled, and they go beyond anything that we understand in human relationships. And that's a great word, not just when we think about who are you going to be married to if you've been married more than once? 
Or are you still going to be married to the person that you did not want to be married to in the first place, but stayed married to? Or are you going to be the parent of your child, or is your child going to look after you? Or if a four-year-old person dies, are they going to be a four-year-old person in heaven? And a 104-year-old person dies, are they going to be 104 in heaven? There are millions of questions, probably an infinite number of questions we can ask about what the afterlife will be, what, what the complete life will be. That word afterlife even is problematic for me. It implies that it's, that it's what's left over or something, right? No, it's the, it's the completion and the fulfillment. And God has all of that taken care of. Now, Jesus throws in that story about how Moses referred to, to, the, to the fathers, to the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of them. They're still alive. So Jesus is giving us an expansive view of of what is to come, and, and he corrects a misunderstanding that is there in the Sadducees' way of thinking about things. And so all of your questions about whether or not your precious puppy dog is going to be in heaven or not, all of those questions I refer to this story that Jesus says, it's all going to be dealt with, don't worry about it. And that's about all we know. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Now, the next story that Luke tells us, verses 41 to 44, Jesus turns around and asks a question of the people that have been trying to trap him. Then Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how can he be his son. Okay, Jesus asks an impossible question to answer, except in one way. And if you answer it in the only way it can be answered, then that puts Jesus into the position that we believe Jesus had, that, that admits who Jesus actually is, but that does, not admit, that does not solve the problem for the Jews who do not want to say who Jesus is, who do not believe it, didn't understand it, didn't agree with it, didn't accept it, tried to resist it, okay? Here's the issue, okay? David, King David, the greatest king of Israel, right? The one that everybody looks up to is the one who actually made in Israel into a real nation, right? And in David's own prayers, David obviously recognizes that there's someone who's going to come after him who is going to be superior to him. And that's not the way things worked. The Jews were looking for someone from the line of David, a son of David, if you will. A great, 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 add a few more greats, a grandson, if you will, who is going to be as great as David. But in this prayer, David seems to imply that there's someone who's going to come from his line who is going to be greater than he is. Now, the son is never greater than the father, but this is someone who's going to be greater. So in that prayer, Jesus sees David's admission that there is a higher authority over him. There is someone who will be from God who is going to come, right? Now, if the Jews say that there is someone greater than David, they have to say, well, who is that person? When is that person? They didn't conceive of it that way. 
But Jesus is leading them to, be, to, to either say, well, you don't agree with what the scripture implies here, uh, in, in which case you're wrong, or you're wrong about what's actually going to happen, that someone greater than David is going to, to come, that David's son is actually his Lord. And of course, that's who Christians would say Jesus is. Jesus is son of David, descended from the Davidic line, but he is David's Lord. And so Jesus asks a question that they are trapped by, that if they answer one way, they're toast. If they answer the other way, they're toast. But it points directly then at who Jesus is. And in a sense, all of these stories, all of this back and forth, this argument about these impossible questions and impossible situations, all of that proves to us as believers in Christ, who Jesus actually is. So let's keep on going. Verse 45, chapter 20. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. He looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Okay, here Jesus is taking on corrupt religion, improper, completely misguided uh, uh, understanding of, of what it means actually to be holy, to be righteous, to be good. He points to the scribes and by implication all the leaders who love the, the, uh, the hero worship, who love the celebrity, who love the deference that they receive from others because they have convinced themselves and they have convinced everyone else that they are holy and righteous and good. But Jesus obviously condemns all of that. Jesus says that's not what being holy and righteous is good about. That's not what it is, right? What is holy and righteous and good? And he points then to a poor widow now let's understand the implication of who a poor widow would be in that context, okay? We look with some sympathy upon this person. But the high and the mighty and the rich would look on her and say, you know, God must not love her. She's not very blessed. God took her husband away from her. Therefore, God took away her livelihood away. God took her livelihood away. God, God took everything away from her. And, and not so much with pity, but with a judgmental attitude is how they would look upon this poor widow. Someone who is, who is completely worthless to society, not even, not even worth caring very much about. Uh, one of the masses. Who cares about this person? Just one of the masses. We look at that differently because of Jesus, frankly right? Because of this story, frankly. But we can understand where that other attitude comes from, right? 
I, I would propose to you that sometimes we hear about something terrible happening to someone, and depending on who that person is, we give it a lot of thought and attention, and we feel very sorry, or we don't. Or we don't. I'll highlight for you uh, American media, and probably all media in some way, right? If there's a plane crash on the other side of the world, and 200 people are killed, the media want to tell us either that there were no Americans on board or that there were X number of Americans on board. As if God could care less. But we care. We care whether there are our own people on board. If it's people from somewhere else, especially people from a country that already has a couple of billion people in it, it's like, oh, well, they're nobody. We don't care. That's our attitude. That's, in a sense, the attitude that the rich and high and mighty would have about this widow. But in Jesus' story, the widow is the hero. She's the one who gets it right. She's the one who gives almost nothing, but almost nothing is all she has. And that's what she gives. We're familiar with that story. Preachers love this story during stewardship season. I love this story during stewardship season because it tells us about what God values and who God values and how every single one of us is valuable to God. And it takes the high and the mighty down and puts them on a level with everybody else because as far as God is concerned, that's exactly where they are. There is no such thing as celebrity or fame or heroism in the scriptures and in God's way of looking at things in the sense that we celebrate all of those things. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that celebrities are not beloved by God. They are just as much as the nobodies of the world are, but not more. Okay, continuing on. There are several more stories there. Several more lessons there. We can't spend time with all of them. Verse uh, 5 of chapter 10, 21. This, uh, let's see, is that, yeah, this is a long passage, so I'm going to read it all, and I want you to get a, get a sense of the overall tone and feel of this, okay? When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Jesus said, beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them, though. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. 
You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are days of vengeance as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves." People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer's already near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. It's a lot. And I wanted us to get a sense of it's a lot couple things here. This whole speech or series of, of sayings that are put together into one big complete thing. This is Jesus speaking in an idiomatic way, a mode, a way of theologically thinking and expressing himself that we know as apocalyptic. You hear this language, of course, primarily in the book of Revelation, some of it in Daniel, some of it in other places in the Bible. There was a line of theological thought that had gone back for centuries and continued on that wanted to think about what is the end going to be? What's it going to be like? What are the signs of the end? What happens with the end? And all the discussion about everything falling apart, everything blowing up, everything imploding, everything coming apart at the seams, all of this conversation is within that greater theme that everything is going to come apart at the seams. In a sense, the whole creation will not be able to withstand. It will not hold together. And when that happens, then God is there. Many of you have studied a long time ago now with me, the book of Revelation. And occasionally I will tell you, here's what Revelation says, right? There are two words that sum up for me the entire meaning of the whole book of Revelation. God wins. Okay? God wins. You could also say God survives. God thrives. And so do we 
who are held in the power of God. Regardless of whether everything is falling apart, and one day we conceive that it will, right? Maybe this is scripture's way of pointing us ahead to that time when current science says the whole universe will stop expanding and it will actually then start contracting and it will all come back together and everything that exists will end up as one tiny little speck of matter again. Who knows? I don't know. Right? But that's the point. Jesus is very clear that the world will fall apart. Everything will come apart. In his own lifetime, people were worried about that, and it was only about 40 years later that it actually happened in Israel's history. The zealots rose up against the Romans. The Romans finally put down and destroyed what was left of the Jews, especially at Masada. The temple itself was destroyed, and the temple was never rebuilt. Okay? So the fulfillment, if you will, of these prophecies happened 40 years after Jesus was gone. And yet we're still here. One of the things that Jesus says very clearly here and in other places is that when we are worried about the end coming now, that we don't know when the end is coming. We don't know exactly how the end is coming. And we should never pay attention to anyone who says, I'm the one who's bringing it to an end or I know when it's coming. Because so far in 2,000 years, every single one of those folks has been dead wrong. Every single one, right? In World War II, we said that Hitler was the Antichrist and everything was coming to an end. During the Cold War, we said that, that Stalin and then Khrushchev were potentially the Antichrist because they were going to precipitate the nuclear annihilation of the world, right? Some people said that Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist because he had the mark of the beast on his head. I, and that's just in my lifetime and your lifetime. So what is Jesus trying to say here? Remember how this story started. Jesus was in the temple. If you go back to the beginning of this passage, and some people were looking at the temple and say, wow, isn't this a cool place? This is a beautiful place. Surely God is here. Right? That's what people believe. The temple was there. As long as the temple was there, God was there. Everything was fine. Everything was perfect. And Jesus said, Really? You're impressed by this building? You think the presence of this building and we being here worshiping God in it is what the kingdom is all about? Now, Jesus clearly knew there was a place for the temple, that the temple served a purpose, but the temple was not heaven. The existence of the, of the, of the, the religious experience of the people and the religious practice of the people, that wasn't heaven. All of that would be erased one day, and it was. That's not the kingdom of God. Everything can fall apart. Everything in our lives can fall apart, but that's not the end of us because what? What Revelation says, God wins. And so stay on God's side. That's essentially what this whole thing says. Now, there are points where Jesus warns us and says, watch for the kingdom be present and aware to where the kingdom actually is. And then in everything else Jesus had to talk about, where was the kingdom? What did the kingdom consist of? The kingdom consists of people living together in the way that God means for us to live together. That's where the kingdom of God on earth is, and it's a sign of the kingdom of God on heaven. So there's a whole lot more that we could say out of this, but we don't have time to. At the end of the day, what Jesus says is, don't get worried, don't get upset, just stay faithful 
and keep on doing the things that I have taught you to do and keep learning and living and loving each other and taking care of each other and everything else is going to take care of itself because God wins. Okay, I better stop there. There's about 42 sermons here in these passages that we've just looked at and that would be the introduction to it all. Then we'd have to get deep. At any rate, um, again, we're kind of out of time for questions and you guys are too afraid to come up to the microphone most of the time and ask me anyway, but I expect to have an onslaught when we're done. Okay, is all good? We are meeting next week. We are meeting next week, the Lord willing, because the end of all existence might happen before then. I don't know, neither do you. Let's pray. God, thank you for being with us today. Help us love each other and love you. Amen.